Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Dr. James Kelly. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff. And if you're like me, you want to get the cliff notes, or I guess these days they call them the spark notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests, like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27, or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45, or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85, plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select view full description. There you'll see the link to download all the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now for today's guest. Dr. Kelly is the author of The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. He also brings a fresh perspective to leadership from a humble home in Portland, Oregon, to earning his PhD and living near Dubai with his wife and four children, James's journey is full of adversity. He also has a keen interest in the adversity that shapes great leaders around the world. Whether it's on his podcast, Executive, Executives After Hours, or giving a keynote speech at a conference, James loves to dive deep and share stories of how and why leaders need crucible moments to be a better version of themselves. James believes that his unique journey filled with ups and downs, twists and turns, and a driving curiosity equips him to bring great value to the world of executive leadership. And for the listener, as usual, if you don't have time to listen to the entire episode or if you hear something you like but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of The Action Plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the show. Jim, thank you. It's so weird for me to say the name Jim. Jim, thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> so you and I share the uh, experience of having four kids, which we talked about a little <laughs> bit off air. And, which And a first name. Yeah, and honest. a first name, right? Yeah. Do you go by Jim? Yeah. So a uh, quick short story. I did up till 2006. 
And then in 2006, when I started my PhD in Perth, Australia, the the admin staff refused to call me Jim. And, really? And the only reason, only yeah, the only reason was is they were like, "You're going to be a professor. Jim is not a professorial name." <laughs> and so, literally from January 22nd, 2006 forward, I've gone by James. And That's my wife when I was James, and it, everybody. My mom is like, "Who are you? It's right. not James." So when so I go your to wife calls house, you Jim. Jim. Nope, nope. My wife calls me James. Did she? Um, did she used to call you Jim? No, so she did. She met. Well, that's a longer story. Oh, but she, so she she met got, me the second yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. She met me the second time, and I went by James, and she just stuck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, that'd be hard to switch. I mean, I'm I'm just Jim to everybody. <laughs> Everyone's people call me James just uh, for you know joking around sometimes. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but man, James, that is much more formal. So maybe I have to change that. Maybe if I get my my PhD, then uh, I'll go. With yeah. James. I'll follow your <laughs> well, and as you get to know me during this episode, formality is definitely not what I would describe <laughs> myself as. So. <laughs> Well, why don't you do that? Why don't you describe yourself? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Kind of, you know, just kind of 30,000 yeah. foot view where you were born and raised and kind of short uh, version of how you got from from there to where you're at now. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to come on the show and, and just speak about whatever we're going to talk about. I think it's great just to have real conversations. So I, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and I was one of three and a half, which sounds ridiculous, but we adopted a, a, a brother when he started high school so he could play sports. And so I grew up in a very athletic, sporty family, but we were lower middle class. And uh, I always joke that we were Irish Catholic with a touch of violence without the Catholicism uh, (laughs) as a a way to describe our family. So the only way we communicated was yelling. That was, that was, you know, whoever's loudest and typically the the one who had the most insults won the arguments. I had to uh, grow myself out of that as an adult. (laughs) As I figured out that wasn't the way. Yeah. It doesn't work with anyone, (laughs) even a girlfriend, wife, whatever. Um, And so I, I went from there and I, I played water polo in college. I went to the University of Dayton, and uh, it's not a hotbed for water polo, but at the time, it was a Division One, and I knew I would play straight away. So it was one of those, go to a good school, know you're not going to play till junior year, or go to a lesser-known school and play straight away. I chose the latter, um, and then after a year there, I quit because I had a girlfriend back in Portland, Oregon, and I sold new and used cars for a year, which is in of itself, a massive experience when you're 19 years old. So at the time, um, this is a really vivid story that I talk about, is uh, I was, there was two lots. There was a new car lot and a used car lot, right? And so it was a Chevy dealership. And at the used car lot, there was this, what we called the the used car shack. And the reason why I tell this story is this is kind of one of these pivotal moments in my life. And I walk into the shack one day, and this is March. And I walk into the shack one day, and two guys had a rolled up dollar bill. And they were doing lines of Coke. And if, if you can think of any movie where they have that dream sequence and people fast forward 20 years, I literally did this. I literally paused when they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I thought what my life would look like in 20 years if I went down this path. And I, I said no. And I walked out and I called my mom and said, I want to go back to college. Wow. Like literally yeah. in five minutes. It just, there was something about it that said to my said to myself – there are two distinct paths I'm going on right now. If I don't, if I'm not careful, one wow. is in jail, one is so. So for me, yeah, I went back to college, and from there, my life is a bit of a whirlwind. So I, I moved to Chicago. Uh, I was there for ten months. I moved back to Portland to open the 41st office of a national advertising company at 24, 25, grossly underqualified. 
I did the fake it to make it, and uh, I don't think I made it because my <laughs> second job, I got, I got, I moved to San Jose and got fired about six months in. And then, um, if you if you've ever seen Seinfeld, I had the summer of Jim, if you will. So <laughs> there's the episode of Summer of George. I had the summer oh, of yeah, Jim, and, that's right. and all I, all I did, um, I got fired in like May. And all I did was paint walls at a local gym and teach kids how to swim. And I grew my hair out. And you saw me. I'm bald as can be now. Yeah. But I grew my hair out to shoulder length, bleach blonde, and I had a big bushy brown beard. And I went from there to New York City to get my MBA at a small liberal arts college. And uh, after two years, uh, I graduated. And within that two years, I took a team of, of college kids to Australia. And that was my first international experience. And man, was I hooked. Like I was hooked as could be to experience the world outside the U.S. I had always had this natural curiosity. I was always curious, like what other things were like. I was, I was the, I was the guy that was, the grass is always greener, so let's go check it out, even though it never is. But you always want to go see it. So after I got back from Australia, I decided to go live in Tokyo, Japan, and so I spent a year in Tokyo, teaching English, and I and I came, I came back after that, and we're 2003 at this point. And I lived with my mom again, so it's cool. I'm 31, live with my mom. It's all cool. <laughs> very cool. It's all cool. Yeah, all cool kids do that. Right. And, um, and so in that process, I had applied for the Peace Corps, and I was I was doing basically new business facilitation. I was cold calling government agencies, things like that, for a software company. And um, so I, I had applied for the Peace Corps because I'm like, all right, I've got to get my act together on some level because <laughs> I don't know what I'm – I'm single. I'm with my mom. Like it's just not a good formula for for, for future success. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm living the dream. And so I um, applied to the Peace Corps and I had this meeting. This is – and we can dive into – anything you want to dive into, by the way, just stop me. Yeah, okay. Um, please don't feel like you're being rude. And um, I was at – Portland State University doing a Peace Corps meeting, kind of learning more about it. And at the end of the meeting concludes, and I was at a bar, so I had a, I was having a beer, and, and the woman who was organizing it was, was actually a grad student at Portland State. And a couple of her friends came from Africa who were PhD students. And in this conversation, we were talking about world polit politics, you know, geopolitical trappings of Africa and like famine. I mean, pretty deep stuff that, that you don't have every day. But, but I left that conversation feeling... I think I could get my PhD. Now, let me just say that by 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 prefacing the fact that I was a two five high school student, a two four college student. I was not an academic. I am I am not cut from that mold of of understanding the academic world. But it was something that was aspirational, almost as an egotistical thing to say that I could do it because people said I couldn't. And so I, I applied to. I didn't want to live in the U.S. I had the bug. And so I applied to a bunch of schools in Spain and Ireland and the UK and Australia. And I picked a school in Australia called University of Western Australia. And it's in a town called Perth, which is on the far west coast. And to give the audience any type of picture of what this looks like, think of San Diego, but Australia. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's sunny. The, the water's amazing. Uh, the people are amazing. And so I went there and I lived there for three and a half, four years. Uh, got married while I was there. Had my first kid while I was there. Uh, my wife is not Australian, though I thought I would marry an Australian. She's American. Um, and then after I, I, I was almost finished with the PhD, I felt the pressure. I don't know if you ever felt this or not, but, but after my first kid, I was still a doctoral student. And I just felt this immense pressure to start working. Like I was like, I have to get a job. 
And so I took a job at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. So here we are, Perth to Philadelphia, and uh, spent seven years there and three more kids later. Um, <laughs> my time ended there, and I, and I moved to a school called United Arab Emirates in the UAE. And that's where I'm at now. And then next year or the year after, we'll be moved back to the States. And we don't know where, but, but it'll be somewhere in the U.S. And yeah. That kind of gets you up to date. It's a long story. I apologize, but there's a lot of stops in there. Sure. Well, that's fascinating. What a, what a fascinating place that, that you're living now. And you've gotten to, to travel. And my wife and I love to travel. We actually met with leading adventure camping tours traveling across the country after college. Um, I had already traveled through, spent about three months in Central America and then some time in Europe. And I had competed on a USA national team overseas in Turkey. So um, I'd love to travel myself. And then she and I went to Brazil on our honeymoon and Costa Rica after that and Croatia. So we, awesome. we love to travel as well with the four young kids right now. Uh, it's hard to travel, but whenever you're doing like what you're doing, you're setting up shop. I mean, that's uh, what a great way to see yeah. the world and just experience different cultures. So good for you, man. Thank you. So James, the title of your book, The Crucible's Gift, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So, you know, it was something that came to me and, and I think that you're going to agree with this only because of, of the nature of your podcast. You know, as I was interviewing the leaders that I interviewed for my podcast, executives after hours, I started to see this theme and this theme was adversity, self-reflection, growth. I'm a better leader. Yeah. And just for the, for the listener, you know, adversity, obviously we talk about that in every podcast episode. But uh, reflection, you know, what's that sound like? It sounds like a productive pause, which, which James, you know, my, my listeners are, are very well versed in this idea of uh, <laughs> productive pause. It's a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. So it's such a key piece, yeah. I think, uh, of dealing with adversity. But, but sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's all right. And so as I was, I was trying to think of a way to frame it. In the book, and initially it was the gift of of the crucible, and you know it was adversity this and blah blah blah. And w- w- the reason why I settled on the crucible's gift is because it really is the gift, right? It's not the gift of the crucible. The crucible's gift is really that that package that if you take time to unwrap it and pay attention to it and learn from it and be open to the possibilities of what if, there is a lot of lessons in that moment. Now, as you know, and you've talked about it in your TED Talk, and you've had many guests that talk about this, those lessons are almost never immediate. Those lessons are always, you know, three, six, 12, 18 months down the road. Some, for some people I've interviewed, it was 10 years down the road sure. that, they, that they had the moment of clarity of like, ah, that's why I am who I am. I might need to fix that. Um, and so that's where that came from, really. It's just, it's just the reflection of what, in my mind, best encapsulates that, that moment, so for the listener who is sitting there and they're struggling with something right now, or maybe maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was longer than that, but but they failed or they're struggling and they, they're, they're facing some kind of adversity or they've faced some kind of adversity in the past and maybe subconsciously, and I'm challenging you a little bit right now for the listener, I'm challenging you, think about maybe some limiting beliefs that you have about yourself or about your potential or about what's actually possible in your life because we all we all have these sort of dreams and hopes and visions and oftentimes we dip our toe in the water and the water's hot and we don't want to go back in and and um because we face that adversity we you know we we face a little bit of that that headwind and we go ooh maybe this is going to be a little bit harder than i thought or maybe a lot harder than i thought or maybe it's not even possible we have that thought 
how James does somebody actually use that, right? It sounds nice. It sounds like it's it's a nice title for a book sure. or it's a nice nice topic for a <laughs> TED talk, TEDx talk, you know. But how do we make it real? How do we actually do that? Because you know, the fact of the matter is it sucks and, and it's hard. And we don't have that inspiring Rocky music playing in our life, right? It's like we're, what? we're going through, yeah, right? We're going through <laughs> life with, you know, you know, washing dishes in the evening and, you know, yeah. our hair's a mess when we wake up. And that's the reality of life. It doesn't look like it looks in the movie. So how do we, how do we actually take that adversity and in, in, in obstacles and, and turn that into some sort of gift? So, I mean, I think this is a profound question, and I'm not scapegoating. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reframe it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think the, the 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 thing about this idea of adversity or the crucible or however someone wants to define it is that you actually have to acknowledge it, and without the acknowledgement of of a limitation, then then you don't actually. It's not easy to embrace it, you know. Uh, I'll use my mom as a great example. My mom has let fear decide 90% of her choices. And the the fear choice is typically the the safe choice, but it isn't always the best choice. And and I'm sure you'd agree with this 100%. You know, one of the things that we preach to our kids is don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. Yeah. And, and what is that? And what does that mean? I'm not talking about jumping off a bridge with no bungee cord. Yeah, that's stupid. That's that's good fear. I'm talking about unhealthy fear about something that is uncomfortable emotionally. That if you if you're able to step back and look at the bigger picture, it's probably worthwhile for you to do it. And so when you when people ask me that question about what do you do in the face of a crucible, I think I think first one is is just acknowledge it. The second one is to let it ruminate. Let it let it percolate in your being of who you are because in that if you're willing to be open to it, that's when the lessons happen. So often and I'm sure you see this too and you've seen it with your wrestling and, and things like that is that often your your own worst enemy is yourself. Your own your own negative voice is the one that dictates the choices that you make. Yeah. And it's not easy to frame it in a positive way. You know, one of the things that, that I've recently come across that I'm just embracing wholeheartedly is this idea of, of thinking about moments in your life that are high point moments, moments where success happened, and trying to reflect on the idea of, you know, for example, uh, when I speak it to an audience, and I'll think back and I'll say, you know, when was there a time, and I create the story, when was there a time when I spoke that I felt empowered and that I was empowering the audience? And then what words can I use to describe that? And then I use that as a moment. And so if we can, we can de- detect those moments in our lives, we can then reframe it, that adversity. Okay, so there's another point in my life that was really difficult. Okay, in that moment, where is that gift? What have you learned? You know, I and so what I'm talking about when I talk about that high point is taking that high point and then moving into the future. So if I'm speaking again in three or four weeks or three or four months, it's thinking about okay, in that high point in the past, what were the factors or moments or words that described it? How do I replicate that again in the future? What do I need to do? to break that cycle that I might have. You know, one of the things I talk about in terms of adversity and realizing it is the death of my father. My dad died when I was 20 years old in college. And, uh, 
Uh, I didn't really comprehend it for the first probably three or four years. I drank a lot uh, as a coping mechanism. And I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic, but I definitely was a college binge drinker all the way down as, as you could be. But what I realized is that when I separated myself from the emotion and looked at the reality of the situation, I had a choice to make in how I framed that adversity. Is it horrific that my dad passed away? Absolutely. Am I sad that he misses my kids and doesn't get to know anything about my life now? Absolutely. But am I thankful that I learned to be a better human being and a better person and make better health choices because my dad was unhealthy? Absolutely. And so it's not focusing on what what could have been. It's focusing, for me at least, on what I can control and what I can do moving forward to have a different experience that's more positive for those around me. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So you're actually you're actually taking that time to, like you said earlier, to reflect and to think about this. And you know, most people just kind of let it let it simmer underneath. You know, they first of all, like you said, you got to acknowledge it. And I think a lot of people just don't acknowledge it. They just ignore it or ignore it or they bury it and they don't talk about it. Or if they do talk about it, it's in nothing but a negative fashion. Of course, there's their negative. It's a victim mentality and. And that might be hard for some listeners to hear. And, and even for myself, you know, I think about sometimes where I'm like, ah, you know, when, you know, this for this, you know, I, I can't do this for this reason or can't do that for that reason. But it's like, we've got to admit that that's, if, if that's in there, we've got to bring it to the surface, you know, productive pause. We've got to bring it to the surface. We've got to reflect on it. We've got to have discussions, open discussions about it. We've got to journal on it. We've got to write about it. We've got to think about it. We've got to have conversations out loud with ourselves or conversations out loud with with an executive coach or or somebody else or a a mentor or an accountability partner. Have these conversations. Make them real and go, okay, what part of what what I'm saying is a victim mentality and what part of what I'm saying is actually an opportunity and how how do I make it like an opportunity? And I'll be, I'll say it this way too. Sometimes when we we say for the first time, okay, this negative thing, there was actually some good that came out of it. First, the first time we say it, it's like I, I, I could say it, but I don't, it's like a me- mechanically saying mm-hmm. it. I don't really believe it. But like the second time you say it, you kind of believe it a little bit, it's starting to make a little bit of sense. But like the third time you say it, it's like, yeah, this is this is truth. I'm actually speaking truth that that there is benefit, there is positivity, there is. There is a gift that comes from, you know, in your example, losing your father at a young age. There's, there's a gift that it, the whole thing's not a gift, right? There, there's some challenges that came along, but like in the end, oh, like, sure. how do you take this, these challenges that we've faced in our lives and, and turn them into a positive, something that can drive us forward? And that's, that's, that's key. You know, and the other thing I would add to that, I think that's, that's awesome, is that you know, there's this thing called flipping, and, you know, I, I wish I don't have the book next to me, but I'm reading a book about this, how to ask the right questions. And it's, it's a really great book and it's super simple. Um, and, and this is this method. So let's take my dad's death, death as an example. For most people, rightfully so, no judgment on my behalf. It's a woes me, right? It's how could this happen to me? And the idea of flipping is when you say something that's negative, like my dad's death has destroyed me. The idea is actually saying, okay, what's the exact opposite of that, right? So my dad's death has destroyed me. The opposite of that might be my dad's death has given me strength because. And so it's taking what's diminishing who you are as a person, voiding you, sucking your soul, um, 
your confidence and flipping it saying, you know what, because of this, it doesn't have to be negative. What's the opposite of that? You know, if you lose, if you don't get a job, right, you go for a job interview, you don't get the job. Instead of saying, what's wrong with me? You flip it and say, what's right with me that I didn't get that job? Yeah. What's right with me that another job will be better? And it's this idea of taking these negative thoughts that you have in your head or negative questions that you're asking someone like, what is wrong with you? Or, or um, why didn't I get what I wanted, whether it's food or restaurant? Whatever it is, right? It could be any minor thing. I'm coming up with awful examples right now, but my point is, is that <laughs> it's take it's taking the negative question and literally saying, what is the exact opposite of that? Sure. And that's the right question you should be asking. Yeah. Not the not the other one. And and I I I want to add on to that that this isn't just for someone who's who's struggling in the sort of normal sense of the word because yeah. I have a lot of people who are you know very successful sort of in the outwardly looking the way the world defines success, you know, making multiple six figures or millionaires who listen to this or professional athletes or former professional athletes are saying, that's not me. That's not me. This, I don't, I don't, I don't need to hear this. This message isn't for me, but yes, it is because I, I work with some of those people that I'm talking about and they're very successful. And, and the, the, victim mentality. And again, maybe that's a little bit too negative of a connotation when we say that, but, but sometimes it's like, well, I just, I don't have time to do that. I don't have enough time to work out or I don't have enough time to focus on my wife or I don't have enough time to whatever it is they want to do or, or the, for maybe the professional athlete that's, you know, everybody wants a piece of me and I just, you know, everybody's, everybody's trying to take advantage of me or whatever the case might be. It's like, we can all, we can all benefit by, by understanding what, what Dr. Kelly's sharing with us here. And, well, and, you know, can, can I, sorry, just because you and I are just riffing right now, but this is awesome, sure. um, is that, you know, what you're talking about and not to totally bring it back to my book, cause I talk about this in, in my integrity chapter is the idea of saying, no, we're not in a culture of no, we're in a culture of yes. And what I mean by that is that if you're in a work environment, yes, I'll be on this project. Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll go here. Yes, I'll go to these drinks. Yes, I'll have dinner with this person. Yes, 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 yes. And what happens when you have a thousand yeses is that you have a thousand spilt plates of pasta all over the place. And you have to understand your framework in terms of what's most important. Right. And stay within that framework. So that means saying no. And so I often talk about to people this idea of saying no, but saying no in a way that's beneficial to the person, your supervisor, that you have to say no to. So to say no to someone and say, listen, I would love to do this project. It looks amazing. My plate is full. And if I do this project, I'm not going to do a great job on something else or on this. And I want you to look good for your superior. So we need to compromise on either something, another project off my plate, or you need to get this to somebody else. Yeah. Most people in a position of managing good managers authentic managers will embrace that with your with your level of integrity and honesty wholeheartedly and work with you on that. And I think that's really important that people are like, I can't say no to something. I think that's BS. And if you can't say no to someplace, something or someone, if it's benefiting you and them, then you're in the wrong place in the wrong environment. That's just, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Yeah, I agree. I always say to saying yes to one thing inherently means you're saying no to something else. So you've got to understand what is, like you said, most important, not what's important because there's, there's a lot of things that are important. It's like, what's, mm -hmm. what's most important. And when you're spending your time on your highest value tasks, your highest value work, that's yeah. when, when you really move the needle because there's a lot of important stuff, but it's like, what is, what is most important? And mm. so you talk about acknowledging our adversity, right? Acknowledging maybe failures in the past. And you also talk about being an authentic leader, 
So as a leader, whether the leader that's listening is a manager, an entrepreneur, maybe they're a CEO, maybe they're a teacher, maybe they're a parent, as a leader, is it okay for us to share our adversity? Is it okay for us to share our failures? Um, <laughs> I had a sarcastic comment, but I'll refrain. I was going to say, does the bear poop in the woods? Um, <laughs> no, you said it, so you, I, that's, that's good. Yeah, oh, yeah, I guess yeah. <laughs> um, It's so like President think, Trump. Yeah. Like after, He's like, I'm yeah. not going to say it, but... And then he says it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tweet, 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 tweet. I'm a jerk. Okay. Right, right. Um, uh, I, I, listen, uh, I think humanity... I think we've lost the sense of, 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 of humility and humanity in our society. And that we are all people and we all put pants on the same way. And we all have problems. We all have struggles. And otherwise, and there's a difference between whining and stating facts. And I think we have to be very clear. There are the people who are takers and people who are givers. And people who take, take, take emotionally and complain a lot and exhaust you, that's a, that's a whole other conversation in terms of how you deal with them. But if you're somebody who says, listen, I lost a father, I had bankruptcy, I'm getting divorced, you know, these are all common themes that happen in people's lives. You have to acknowledge it. And one of the things that I talk about in, in the book is this idea of compassionate leadership. You know, I think for me, in today's, in today's world of collective leadership, which is where we're going, this idea of collective decision-making and collective leadership, you have to have people who are comfortable enough to say what they're not good at and what their shortcomings are, what their adversity moments are. Because if you that, how do you start building connections? You know, in your podcast and my podcast, one of the things I pride myself on is sharing my story. And when you share your story, the person on the other side automatically, almost always brings down that wall and they share something. I've had people tell me, you know what? I've never said this before on any podcast ever. And that's across, you know, 180 episodes that I've done. I've had that happen to me probably 15, 20 times to people who've been on a lot of podcasts yeah. because we're sharing in a real conversation. And to me in an organization, there's the TMI moments for sure. And you have to feel out the colleague that you're having it with. And in current, in today's current environment, for me, that line is very gray nowadays. And I'm not totally sure where that is sometimes to be honest with you, but I do feel like sharing real moments in your life of struggle actually builds a compassionate, honest relationship focused environment culture. And, and there's research that talks about this. There's research that says when you have a compassionate environment, when you have an environment full of integrity or being honest, when you have an environment that actually perpetuates positive moments, micro moments of meaning, you actually have better ROI. And it, these are all soft skills that, that hardcore CEOs that are old school that don't fully understand miss because all they're looking at is return on their, their investors, their shareholders. And, and the mistake on that is that's a three-month cycle, and you're missing the bigger picture. Can you share maybe your favorite story or favorite lesson from your book? Yeah. Oh, my God. So the book is chock full of stories. And so, so just let me frame how I wrote the book. I, I wrote the book and I, I looked at and I transcribed about 140 of the interviews that I did. And each one of my interviews are about an hour long. And I took excerpts of some of those interviews that I think made the points that I wanted to make. Not huge, long, like three-page dialogues, but like two or three paragraphs. And so those are sprinkled throughout the book with about 40 to 50 leaders uh, across from Fortune 2 companies all the way to entrepreneurs. So it's a, it's a wide spectrum. 
There are a couple of stories that really stick out to me, but the, but the one that I like to share is, is from a woman named Bridget Mayer. And it comes in the second chapter, which is, is really called chapter one, the crucible. And, and, you know, she, she had this amazing, Bridget had this amazing upbringing. So she, she was raised up till nine in, in a single flat with her six siblings sleeping on the floor because her mom was a prostitute and a drug addict. And at nine, she had been in and out of the hospital. She at one point couldn't drink out of the sink, so she had to drink out of the toilet because her mom would disappear for days wow. at a time. And you know, food from the garbage can and wherever she, maybe she didn't eat. And so her and her two siblings get adopted by the same family, one older, one younger. The result of that, which you would think would be the same controlled environment, and in fact, you would understand if the older child sister actually acted out. They both were sisters of hers. But what happened is the older sister eventually commits suicide later on in life. The younger wow. sister is in a rehab. And Bridget goes on to be a collegiate runner, goes on to open an art gallery in Philadelphia, becomes a multimillionaire by 30, and now has another secondary art gallery or consulting firm, art consulting firm in L.A., is internationally known, is known as one of the top art gallery owners in the U.S. now. And she is, I think, 39, if I remember correctly. Wow. So why is it her, in her situation, in her environment with her two sisters, excels? And the only thing she could come up with, and we had this conversation, and I asked her, is that at different points in her life, there was always somebody at some point, in some moment, had this micro moment that impacted her in a way that made her think slightly different. Yeah. That made her want to have a different result. Is that in her? Is it environment? I don't know. I don't know. But that's one of the stories about someone who had these massive crucible in their life who is thriving as a leader. Yeah. Thriving. It's, yeah. It's interesting to think of it that way. You know, like those micro moments. I grew up, I grew up around just uh, thankfully, you know, Olympians and, and high-performing people who were positive and striving to achieve their best, and and you get these just these little micro moments that you'll never be able to track them back. But but the, you kind of have these these key people influencing you and in 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 putting data into your mind and helping you think and approach things in a little bit different of a way. And that's what I talk for for my clients and and for longtime listeners. They know about the environment of excellence. It's 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 something that every high performing athlete has in their lives and and I had that in my life I had coaches who held me accountable and coached me and lifted me up and fed me the right information into my mind I had teammates who held me accountable and I held them accountable and gosh I used to listen to a positive mindset audio that my chiropractor re recorded for me you know and I would just listen to this thing and, That's awesome. and I would visualize and I would learn from these people and they would tell me Jim visualize Jim write down your goals Jim write in a journal and and, and you you know, I could either do, you know, at some point I had to make a choice whether I was going to do these or not do these things. Um, but all those, yeah, it's such a good point. All those little micro moments that, that add up that, and, and it's, and it's like that stuff's so important now. A lot of people just kind of move out, you know, for the former athletes listening, you, you move out, you had that as an athlete and now you don't. It's like, well, how do you recreate that? Right. How do you recreate mm -hmm. that environment of excellence? And that's so, so important to have. Well, and I think that from an athletic standpoint in the U.S., uh, this is just my perspective. I think we have a very broken model. I think we have basically run the kids to death while they're young, burn them out by the time they get through college, and then a lot of them don't want to do a damn thing. And we're not, you know, when I lived in Australia, one of the things that I found fascinating, and Australia has a lot of really talented athletes, 
And, and what I found fascinating is that it was about a culture of sport, not a culture of, of being part of a sport, if that makes sense, right? Like, so swimming inevitably is a 24 seven sport. Wrestling is a highly, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A highly, uh, uh, I was gonna say competitive. That's not the right word. It is highly competitive, but I'm thinking of like, you have to show up consistent sport. Like you have to be there. You have to improve. It's, it's an, it's an ongoing process in any sport. And I feel like we start so young in, in America, so young, um, that we end up either creating repetitive injury much younger for kids because oh, yeah. they're not multi-sporting. We've seen that more and more uh, these days, especially repetitive injuries. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I mean, you go to a, uh, osteop or a, um, orthopedics office and yeah it's it's all kids like under 18 with knees shoulders whatever uh and and so i think that we also then get a lot of kids because the parents are so intense and i'm not saying you are but but parents are so intense Mm -hmm. that they end up hating sport and so i think we've created this monster you know and and i play college sports and you played at elite elite level we both get it like it it helped us achieve certain things in our life that we wouldn't have otherwise achieved for sure. Right. Um, Absolutely. But at what, at what cost, mm-hmm. you know, for you, it worked out, but what about the other 70% it doesn't? Yeah. At what cost? Yeah. And, and so I think that, I think that the way that we frame sport in the U S at least from my perspective is that it's not about being active as a human being. It's about trying to accomplish a scholarship to right. get a free education. Yeah. It's about, you know, about. in the sport of wrestling, it's like, you know, it's about winning a national championship at eight years old. <laughs> you know, there's literally, yeah, Coaches who in in parents and families who like they strive for you know in wrestling it's the Tulsa National Championships or it's and, and it's okay to come, want to compete at a high level but it's um it's we've lost sight of the process and that is that comes back to failure that comes back to adversity it's not about it's not about losing or winning it's about focusing on the process not the outcome because when yeah. you focus on the process. You improve, and it's more fun, and, and it's something that it's enjoyable to do, and, and it's and it's a and it's a replicable skill, no matter if it's wrestling or water polo or writing a book. I mean, it's it's all it's a replicable skill. It's about focusing on the process and, and looking for consistent improvement. And uh, yeah, I think that's a big piece of of what's missing. You know, I, I don't have nothing else to really compare. How do you to. deal with it? How do you deal with your kids now? Oh man, it's hard. Gosh, I don't so, live there, so I don't yeah, have to deal with that's it. A so. great que- that's, a, man, that's a great question. So we've got four kids. Uh, three of them are at the age where they're competing in sports now. And my oldest, he's 12, and he's starting to get into – he's pretty good at soccer. And uh, we consistently talk with him, and, and we make a consistent effort to – and this is in school – and in sports and in he plays guitar and all of our kids play an instrument. So it's like we try to focus on the process. So for example, my, my son got an A on his math test. He's in honors math, right? And he struggles in honors math and, and he got an A recently and I, and I praised him for the A and then I caught myself. I'm like, it's actually not about the A, but what it was about is he actually went in early. He went, he's in sixth grade. He rode his bicycle to school by himself four straight days the week before awesome. to get extra work from the teacher. And it's like, that's what, that's what it's about. It's about mm, doing yeah. the extra work because whether or not you get it, he could have done that and still failed. Should I have been mad at him or, or disappointed at him? Because it, no, because he put the same amount of work in, whether he got yeah. an A or an F. So the A or the F is actually irrelevant awesome. at this point. It's about, it's about the effort put in. Okay. It's like, and I actually talked to him. I was like, so you got an A. I was like, did you actually study as hard as you think you possibly could have? I mean, 
And he's like, well, I probably could have studied a little harder. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's really what we're talking about here, you know, is, is maximizing yourself and doing your best, whether it's, and the best might be an F sometimes. So, um, so that's how we combat that, that, that sort of mentality of like, you got to make the next travel team. You got to make the championship. You got to get, you got to be the best, the best, the best. You know, our daughter just tried out for like the next level of gymnastics. And it's like, you know, what do you like to do, honey? Do you really want to do this? She's eight, you know? And, um, again, we talk about, it is, it's scary, you know? And like the, the next level for her is like the five days a week, three hours a day thing, you know? And, and I'm not sure if we're ready for that, but anyway, it's, it's, and, and if she does, it's still going to be about the same thing. It's going to be about the process, not about winning the gold medal this weekend. So, um, anyway, you know, that's, that's you know, how we combat it. Sorry about that. Um, I was gonna say, you know, what's, what's interesting is that, um, one of the questions I used to ask my podcast, uh, up till like episode 120 or something like that, I would ask, what was your first job, like paying job or first time you had to forcibly work, right? Not chores. And, and the overwhelming response was, and, the, and how old were you? Was the kind of the big thing I was looking for, and and overall, the overwhelming response was between twelve, between eleven and thirteen, they had some sort of job, paper out restaurants, working for the parents, mowing yards, but it was a consistent. I had to show up every single day because of the process. The process of showing up, the process of having to be dependable, like for paper out, the process of having to collect. Like it was, it was, it was one of the more fascinating findings that I had in my, and it's not even in the book, but one of the more fascinating findings that I had That's in my interviews was that process of these people who all consistently, consi- I mean, I'm talking easily, these people are CEOs of big companies consistently, probably 70, 80% of the time had a job between 10 and 14 wow, interesting. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Learning the value so, of showing up. Exactly. So I think what's your son? That's why I think I'm praising your son saying that's awesome that he on his own initiative took four days at 12. That's that's the seeding of that ability to, to, to go the extra mile yeah. to get the result. Yeah, absolutely. So that's you. That's the parents. That's awesome. I'll take credit. I'll take all the credit. It's not even my yeah. wife. It's all me, really. <laughs> Which if anybody knows myself and my wife, they know that's an absolute joke because my wife is the brains behind this operation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's every good man. Yeah. We're we're, we're in place. (laughs) And thankfully, my wife is a licensed therapist. So, I mean, my my kids would be so screwed up if it was left to me. So, she's she's definitely keeping things together. So... Yeah. <laughs> so let's wrap up here in a few minutes, James. And, and I, a couple of questions I do want to ask is, uh, and I ask all my guests, tell me about a time you failed. You know, you've obviously very successful. You, you've, you've had humble beginnings and you've, you've had your own trials and adversity in your life. Uh, now you're a PhD and you've got your published book and you're doing a lot of great things and speaking around the world. Tell me about a time where you failed and as a result, maybe felt that hopelessness and that self-doubt, but were able to overcome it. Well, uh, geez, <laughs> I feel like that list is so long. Um, I, I, I honestly feel, and this is a cat, this is a total just cop out answer. I honestly feel that I'm calling it out ahead of time. I honestly feel that, um, I perpetually feel like I'm failing forward and that, uh, I'm not really a perfectionist, but that I can always find a better version of myself or a better version of what I'm doing. And so when you pick a time, I got fired from a job, you know, um, that was a huge failure. And what did I learn from it? I didn't want to work in corporate America. So, okay, check. Um, you know, I, I failed in, in school. 
what did I learn from it? I'm not the type of kid that's going to memorize. I can't memorize things. I've got to be passionate about what I do. I've got to have uh, a drive, a purpose. Okay, great. So that was a failure. And, um, you know, I've failed in my marriage. I mean, I've, I've made poor choices in terms of how I've talked to my wife or fights we've gotten in. And, you know, I, I think for anyone, and I'm not trying to cop out. I'm just saying that we've all, every human being on this planet has had a failure and multiple at that. The difference between those that get it and those that don't are the ones that take a personal accountability for what role they played in that failure and what they can do with that failure to be a better human being. And so for me, listing one is impossible. You know, I'm a, I'm an infallible human being that makes mistakes all the time and just some happen to be bigger than the others. But I'm open to the possibility and I'm accountable for the choices that I make and how I can improve and change as I go forward. I don't know if that helps. And I they, think that was kind of a crappy cop, answer, cop out know, answer. Here's what I take from that is, is we have to see life as a blessing of being able to go from failure to failure and allowing that to be the driver of our success for tomorrow. Because yeah. if we, if we see life as a state of perpetual failure, Failure with with the good connotation. If we see if Correct. you can if you can get there for the listener, if you can get there and see life as a perpetual state of failure, which means learning, which means improving, improving, which means getting better, then then uh, I mean, gosh, what a, what a great what a great world to live in. And I think we have to be careful when we you know as as I was doing my little speech there, I was I also was thinking about the idea of being content. There's a balance, right? You have to also also be okay with who you are in that process. And it's not an easy. Some people are great at it. I'm not. Um, but but I think you're right. Life is a perpetual motion. And if you're not changing, I think you're dying. It's probably a stark metaphor there. But I feel like you should be evolving as a human being. You know, you should be learning. You know, we didn't really talk about it. But, you know, in my book, I kind of have this model that I unpack. And one of the things that I really think capstones the whole entire book is these leaders that really embrace their crucible. The one thing they had consistently was, was what I call a learning mindset or a growth mindset. And within that means that they wanted to learn more about themselves, their career, the people around them. They were always trying to be a more complete human being for whatever that means for them. Yeah. That's, that's a great, great way to put it. Trying to be a more complete human being. I think that's, that's my listener. That's the that's the the person on the treadmill right now or on the commute right now listening <laughs> to this. That is that is what they're trying to do by getting. That's why they're listening to this episode and this podcast. James, what about a tool or a tactic or a technology that you use? I always ask people. I've been because I, I, this is self serving as much as anything, but I love learning about <laughs> new some kind of app you have or a technology that you use or a supplement that you take or, or some system that you do that helps you be more effective or, or more, more efficient. So, uh, and I, as I got that question, I was really thinking at first I was like, God, I have nothing. And then I had to really unpack that. Um, and so I use acuity scheduling for myself. I, I find that as a solopreneur, it just alleviates one thing. So acuity scheduling basically is I create a, I create one of my avail, availability is and I email my link out to whoever I'm going to be talking with and they find the time that works and they yeah. can have selection process and it makes life so much easier. I mean, 
as you know, the podcast initially, I was trying to schedule everything, every single episode with, and I was like, holy cow, yeah. like it is too stressful for me. Here's a link. Here's my availability. Let's find a time. Yeah. Um, that's a great tool. And, and I, I, there's I, other ones. There's Calendly. I use Calendly correct. and I actually use schedule once as well. Those are yeah. great tools. Um, and the other thing I use, which is kind of funny, I mean, I guess maybe not, but is Grammarly. And what I love about it is just embedded on my browser. It's embedded in my Word docs. Um, it's embedded in a lot of places on my on my computer where it's a site that kind of checks your grammar and mistakes that you make. It's not great, but it's good enough that it will make what you write when you make those silly mistakes. It will catch them. Um, and so those are two things that I use. And those my wife is also my my second spell check as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, the, I, have, I have the Grammarly Google uh, Chrome plugin as well. So it's, it's actually better than yeah. a typical spell check. So uh, excellent. Yeah. James. Thanks so much for making time to come on the show. Can you tell the listener where they can find you, follow you, buy your book, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Thank you for the opportunity. So you can buy the book, The Crucible's Gift, on Amazon. It's in Kindle or uh, hardback or, or uh, paperback. And then there'll be a there'll be a uh, uh, audio version in the fall. Sorry, I'm brain farting here. It's late in my time. <laughs> and then you can also go to my website at drjameskelly.com. That's D-R-James-K-E-L-L-E-Y. And if you click on the tab at the top that says The Crucible Gift, you can actually download the introduction chapter for free. So you can test drive the book, see if you like it. And if you like it, then head over to Amazon at that, at that time as well. Excellent. And for the listener, as usual, I'll have all the links and everything you just said there and every, all the great tips and tactics from this episode in the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. James, I got I to gotta be able to call you Jim by now, right? We're both Jims <laughs> at the end of the day. Totally. Fine. So great yeah. to uh, have you on the podcast. I appreciate you making time for it and uh, appreciate you sharing your insights. Thank you, Jim, for your time, energy, and willingness to have me on your show. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.